This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up on the programme, we speak to the artist behind a brand new contemporary exhibition at Stonehenge. This is the first time they will have done it at Stonehenge. And I think it's a move to try and show the incredible artefacts that both they have, Wiltshire and Salisbury Museum have as well. We also hear about and from her artwork. It's about summing up a place through 40 objects. They need to feel like Stonehenge and the surrounding areas and how she took inspiration from our most famous prehistoric site. Plenty more to come from our interview shortly. But first, let's find out what's coming up on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. Things like the ubiquity of screens, I mean, whether he meant it or not, he got that one absolutely bang on. When I was first reading 1984, flat screens didn't exist. Then you have the ubiquity of CCTV as well, the fact that we were all being monitored. There is so much that you can draw from what people are wearing at any particular period in time. Unpicking these codes, unpicking different layers of dress history can really offer great insight into the past. What then gets very strange is that thousands of years into the agricultural process, in some areas, buildings start to become round. I do think there's something meaningful behind it, but I am not going to begin to suggest what that might be. All of that to come very soon. Make sure to subscribe to download the latest episodes. Plus, you can also catch up on any you've missed. Now, as you've probably noticed from previous episodes, the English Heritage Podcast is very much where the past meets the present. And today is no exception, as we meet contemporary artist Linda Brothwell, who's bringing a new exhibition to Stonehenge. So I'm travelling to the historic southwest of England port city of Bristol, about 45 miles away, to meet Linda at her studio and find out how she got the job. Hello, you must be Linda. Hi. Hi, Charles. Welcome to Spike Island. Lovely to meet you. Do you want to come up to the studio? Yes, please. Upstairs? Yeah. We've got a little bit of a walk ahead of us as we weave in and out of the building, but I'll take you down to the sculpture studios. Okay. It almost looks like you're working at the back of Pinewood Studios or something. It's almost like a big (laughs) movie set. Well, it's an old tea packing factory, if that might make more sense. So plenty of room for forklift trucks to go up and down. Yeah, so we have scissor lifts and trucks and things. So this is my studio space. Before we have a look around, could you tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist and your background and how would you describe your work and style? Uh, So I work as a visual artist. I originally trained, though, as a jeweller and a metal worker. Um, So my training from apprenticeship to my undergraduate degree, to my master's degree in London, was all based on metalworking and tool making. But what really interests me is heritage and craft and kind of how we connect to the landscape that we live in and also how we care for the places that we live in. To look at the project of, of Stonehenge then, how did you actually get the, the job? How are you commissioned? Who, who called who? There is a commissioning consultancy called Ginkgo Projects and they do a lot of work locally and and also further afield in the UK and Sophie from Ginkgo got in touch with me to ask if I would like to 
put together a project for a piece of work she was doing in Kingsgate in Amesbury, which is very close to Stonehenge. So I kind of developed this project and work. We kind of went backwards and forwards a little bit about what the nature of the project might be. And as time progressed and the research went on, it became pretty clear that the work was going to be these series of art objects, these series of vessels. And so what we wanted to do was to find a space that was a perfect space to show these works. And that's why I approached Stonehenge. And luckily English Heritage came on board and they, yeah, they're having a show in May this year. So we're very pleased. Okay, we'll talk about all the dates a little bit later, yeah. but um, what's the name of this exhibition, first of all? The exhibition is called Linda Brothwell Conversations in Making. What does Conversations in Making mean? You want, to talk, you want people to talk about how things are sort of manufactured, made by hand? Yeah, it's conversations in making regarding what I do, so when I make something, but also a lot of the research that I've been doing is looking in the local area of other makers. So there's actually quite a wealth of talent and heritage trades that are still taking place within that area of Stonehenge. And so it's looking at the conversations I'm having with those people, the conversations they're having with their materials and with the local landscape. Why is this exhibition taking place? So English Heritage are trying to look at working with contemporary artists. This is the first time they will have done it at Stonehenge. And I think it's a move to try and show the incredible artifacts that both they have, Wiltshire and Salisbury Museum have as well to a new audience or perhaps just with a new lens. So maybe the same audience, but looking at it through an artist's eyes, so kind of breathing fresh light onto it. So you're uh, in a historical moment in itself. I it's, am. <laughs> it's history within history or modern history within ancient history. Yeah, that sounds quite scary now when you put it like that. No, it must be um, quite inspiring to be on such a project like that. Um, how did you actually start doing your research? How did you decide that the exhibition was mostly going to be about vessels, containers? Mm. I am very much convinced of the idea that a contemporary artwork should come out of a place. So the research that you do when you're creating a new piece of work in this way is incredibly important. I have a fascination and a love of tools. I make tools as art objects. I travel the world talking to people about tools and documenting the last tools of particular crafts and trades. And so when I worked in Amesbury and the areas around Stonehenge and Kingsgate, actually the tools that people are using are really important to me as I feel it's a hugely exciting way of mapping a place to show what's happening there, to show what people are doing with their hands. It talks about heritage, it talks about familial links, um, and it talks about the materials that are local to the place. So going around and looking at all of these tools and meeting you know, the local thatcher, the local leather worker, the frame maker, the key cutter, all of these fantastically skilled people, we were talking about the tools that they use. And in such a historically important area, there's obviously all of the Neolithic tools, the Amesbury Archer, the first gold work to come into the UK. So the link here perfectly for me is materials and tools, which are my kind of two primary concerns. But to do tools is such a broad thing that I decided to really refine it down so I could have a common thread. And the common thread for me was the vessel. Obviously the vessel is the first tool, you know, holding the water in your hands. And it's something that works both with the Neolithic, you know, the beaker culture, and it works with the modern day, you know, even the Sports Direct mug that's on the shelf full of paintbrushes, you know, so everybody can understand and everybody has a piece of that language within their home. 
So why is a beaker such a seminal object in terms of the evolution of tools and of, and of mankind? The particular beakers and the particular vessels actually around, in and around Stonehenge, a lot are linked with food and with uh, liquid, of course. But then there's the hugely important ceremonial aspect as well. So things like the incense cups, which are the grape cups are the most beautiful ones that I love. What's so fascinating is talking to the different curators about what they might mean and perhaps what the incense might have smelt like or what those vessels were used for. So that more spiritual aspect was hugely important in the area. And of course, the materials that those things were made out of was incredibly important as well. Let's have a look at some of your objects that you've been working on. Sure. And also, I'd like you to talk me through some of the materials and the colours and yeah. the textures and the shapes. There's lots of different sizes as well. Yeah. So what's probably one of the most interesting pieces you've worked on so far? I'm making these vessels. They're all out of metal and there's 40 of them, and they are done with different processes. So one of the processes is a technique called raising, which is where you take a flat piece of metal, in this particular instance, the one in my hand is copper, and you use a series of hammers and mallets and a, a metal steel object called a stake, and you hit this piece of metal around the object and slowly but surely, through a matter of you know, 30, 40 hours, you actually get this with this vessel piece, which has these lovely sounds. Wow. And you spent 30 or 40 hours just hammering that and making micro indentations across yeah. the entire surface yeah. in order to get that curved shape. Yeah. <laughs> did you have to fire it as well? So you How did do... you get the curved shape from a flat ah, so piece I of metal? Can, I can show you. So when you work, you have this thing called a stake, which is almost a T-shaped steel tool which is very highly polished almost looks like it's in the shape of a sort of ha hammer come anvil yeah i mean it is technically an anvil it's a type of anvil so so what you do is you put the stake in the vice the stake is the piece of metal and you tighten it up so tighten the vice there yep. we go the vice is nice and tight now and when you're working on the vessel you're putting the vessel onto this stake and you're hammering it to get these shapes so if you imagine the hammering is done in rounds, so you go all the way around the outside of the vessel and slowly but surely you change the angle to make it this curved shape. So when you're hitting it, you're hitting it to move the shape so it sounds... And copper's quite a soft material, isn't it? So it's quite yeah. easy to shape. Well... Would that be right? Sort of. Copper, copper is quite soft. It also, you have to anneal the metal in between each round, so you have to heat it up to a certain temperature to allow the hardness of the metal to soften again. And copper takes an awful lot of annealing because the heat moves so fast away from copper. When it comes to something like silver, it's a little bit more soft, it's a little bit happier to work with. You know, the conversation with a piece of silver is a little bit nicer to have than a conversation with a piece of copper. And when you say conversation, do you mean actually hitting it? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, when you're working in a workshop and you're spending 40 hours looking at a single disc of metal, it does become a conversation. You know, you're moving something, you're changing the shape of it, you're seeing how it responds. So, so, it's, so that's actually a technical term that in, in your line of work is... I'm not sure whether it's a technical term, but it's a common term in this studio. Oh, right, <laughs> because OK. Because you're working with a material, it's so important to 
respond to the metal. I mean, that's something that silversmiths or metal workers the world over will understand, that you hit something and it slowly gets harder and harder, and so you need to anneal it. You can't push metal when it's already hard, so you have to kind of be very responsive. It's, you know, it's quite a dance, actually, with the material. That's really interesting, because uh, obviously when I thought about the name of the exhibition, Conversations in Making, I had no idea that conversations meant something else to an artist hitting metal. Yeah, it's very important to be in tune with the material. You can't just hit something and hit something until you're pushing it into the shape it wants to be, because actually what will happen is it will crack, or you know there will be damage formed, or there will be pits formed in the metal. So actually you need to be quite sympathetic and work with the metal to achieve what you want to achieve. So all of these are made out of copper, but they're all different shapes and sizes. The one yeah. that you had in your hand just now and you're picking it up as well yep. is four to five inches tall maybe? Yeah, um, it's about eight centimetres by ten centimetres. So this one is, if you hold it, you hold it in two hands. If you put your two hands together, you kind of, you can cup it. And I can see your fingers wrapping around and your thumbs reaching up to the top there. Yeah. It feels, this one particularly, I think, feels almost like a praying cup or something quite, it's quite a gentle piece as well because it's so curved, you know, it's very soft. I feel like it's, you know, it's a two-handed cup, almost like you could pass it round at a ceremony for this particular one. Yeah, or you could sit and quietly contemplate and mm, yeah. meditate or sit and look at the view of Stonehenge <laughs> and the solstice and the sun passing over the stones or something like yeah. that. So this one, this particular one is unfinished at the moment, so it's quite brown and uh, mottled in colour and it's got a little bit of roughness in it as well, you can kind of Yeah, It still looks quite new though because it looks a little bit like a new 2P piece in places, but in other areas it looks a little bit sort of greyer and, and cloudy perhaps from where it's been heated or, yeah, so or hit. You've got some bigger vessels over there, yeah. could we have a look at those ones? Coming under the stairs here. This is probably the biggest one you've made so far, isn't yeah. it? The, a big copper pot. Yeah. Eight inches tall, I'd say. We can... And you could easily pot that and put a plant in it. Maybe grow some herbs or something. You could. It's that sort of size. It looks heavy. It is quite heavy. So it's made out of three millimetre thick copper. And it's quite a big vessel. This one, again, is a little bit unfinished at the moment. So it has a lovely texture of the hammer marks. These ones make noises as well, don't they? They make sounds. They do. These ones are a little bit like singing pots, so I'll hit them for you now. So there's two here, and two quite different sounds, so... That's one. And then the second one... Now that second one... Might, might they have used them as musical instruments, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, it's conceivable. I, singing bowls are an important part of Eastern culture, certainly in terms of the Buddhist temples and creating uh, sounds for prayer. So it is conceivable. Let's move on to how you acquire these materials. So you brought me down to the loading bay. When the materials arrive, they come in a, in a truck, I presume, and, and how much of them is there? So the copper generally comes on a flatbed truck. The silver actually comes in the post because the size of the silver is a little bit more postable. And so the flatbed truck would just pull up here along the side of the building and we would open these shutters 
and then we would get we've got some trolleys and we would load the trolleys up with the metal and then take it up to the studio up via that ramp there how big is the copper particularly copper would be about three meters by one meter so it's a big long strip and how many would you get in one delivery it depends on the project really i mean these vessels are all quite small so it's just kind of two or three sheets of this big kind of big piece of copper but then some projects it can be you know 10 20 sheets it depends on the scale of the work once you get the copper off the truck and you take it to the studio presumably you have to cut it into bits because it's, it's a really long piece isn't it yeah so it stays up against the wall in the studio uncut the idea is quite wasteful if you cut metal up too soon until you know what it's actually going to be because you can you know you lose excess so it is waiting kind of to design the exact pieces and I cut them out one by one actually. So I would cut, I would think of the next five that I want to do. I would draw them all up, work out the size of the sheet of the metal that I want and then I would cut those five and then I would make them and then I would go back to the sheet and start again. Are you quite excited when you get a delivery then? Because I suppose <laughs> it's another new project that you're about to get your hands on. Yeah, I mean, the delivery comes after the research. So it's kind of probably halfway through. In terms of time, it's halfway through the project um, because obviously we've had to decide what materials I want to work with and the thickness of the metal, the size of the metal, the type of the metal. So there's a lot of decisions and planning that goes on before it comes to actually ordering materials. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's nice to see the same guys who come and drop the materials off, so it's quite good to kind of connect with them as well. So it feels like a team effort? Yeah, it's a really nice community to come and you know, see what you're up to this time and they're dropping off different bits of metal at different times. All right, well, let's um, get the shutters down because yeah, it is a little nice. bit chilly in the loading bay. Linda, as we head uh, back from the loading area down to the cafe, do you get a lot of inspiration from the other artists in Spike Island in this complex? Yeah, so one of the interesting things about being in a community like Spike Island is, is that you can share ideas, you can share frustrations or questions or ways of thinking with the other artists. So that's one of the reasons that we all choose to work in a place like this that's a communal, that has these communal areas and this kind of community atmosphere because it's very important for us to share ideas and support each other really as well. So did you get any ideas for your pots by talking to people here or is it something you worked on more or less on your own and through the research that you did around Amesbury and, and Salisbury and Stonehenge? I mean one of the interesting things is to talk to people who visited Stonehenge as a child because I'm from a lot further north than here. I have never visited Stonehenge until I moved to Bristol and so um, working with the other artists from Spike Island to talk to them about their experiences of seeing the stones and going on picnics and all those kinds of things was really nice to get feedback about how they felt about the space. And what sort of things did they come up with when they spoke to you? What sort of feelings did it evoke for them? I mean, it's a very spiritual place, isn't it? That's kind of well agreed upon. Then there's interesting things about when you used to be able to touch the stones, that there are those kind of carvings in them which are tool shapes. So someone was telling me about that. And actually the texture and the colours within the stones, which it's a little bit harder to see from a distance, so people could explain to me about those different things, especially 
I have a friend here who's very interested in stone and geology and so he was able to talk to me in great depth about the different stone and how that felt to the hand, to the touch and then that texture is then feeding into the pots. So you really valued those interactions then? Yeah, it's a very important community in Bristol and it's a lovely community to be part of. So it's very important for all of our work to be able to talk and share and change, uh, share ideas. And if you'd like to see and hear Linda Brothwell's Conversations in Making contemporary art exhibition at Stonehenge, it's on at the Stonehenge Visitor Centre from May the 24th until mid-November 2019. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.